For our sermon text tonight, let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with Me. And He went a little beyond them and fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The word of the Lord. We're going to take the Lord's Supper tonight. And several words that keep coming to mind as we take the Lord's Supper that are in our shorter catechism and in the scriptures are giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. Our shorter catechism talks about giving and receiving the bread and the wine according to Christ's appointment. And it's appropriate for us to meditate on the Lord's sufferings before we eat and drink. And so uh, the Lord institutes the Lord's Supper in verses 26 through 30 in this same passage. Right after He institutes the Lord's Supper, He begins to go through this time in Gethsemane. The title of the sermon is Jesus in Gethsemane. What I want you to notice tonight is three things. His agonizing in Gethsemane. His praying and is keeping watch in Gethsemane. Jesus is agonizing. Now, what is really interesting here is the disciples are with their master. They're going to Gethsemane to do business as usual. To them, they're going to the place they've always gone. It's normal for Jesus to go to Gethsemane. He had brought them there many times. And the word Gethsemane means oil press. It's probably a secluded place. It's a garden probably owned by one of Jesus' disciples who's given him permission to go here and to use it as a place to pray for teaching and for rest and for sleep. Obviously, there are many times where Jesus would get up from Gethsemane after sleeping. And being an oil press, it meant that in the fall of the year, and it just happens to be the fall of the year, it's time for all the nuts to be shaken off the trees in California. In the fall of the year, it was time for the olives to be pressed for their oil. The disciples are going to Gethsemane with Jesus, business as usual. But Jesus is going there under great pressure. He leaves eight of his disciples outside 
of the deeper place to which he will take three of them. He takes Peter and James and John deeper into the garden. In verse 37, Matthew comments that he's beginning to grieve and be distressed. And then in verse 38, Jesus says these words, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. This is Jesus' agony to the point of death. Now, we read this morning the Apostles' Creed. One of the, one of the little girls that I'm working through the, the confession, confessing Christ with the other day, she said, why don't we pray? He just, why don't we say he descended into hell, Pastor Wheat? And I said, well, we, first of all, we don't mean that Jesus went to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. We, we do not mean that. But the Heidelberg Catechism, this is what I told her, I said, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in beautiful words. Jesus' descent into hell speaks of his unspeakable suffering, unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul that he experienced before the cross and on the cross. Here we are in Gethsemane right before the cross. He's literally going through hellish anguish and torment. When Jesus in Luke 13, he talks about the Tower of Siloam falling on 18 people and it crushed them. Jesus is under the weight. Maybe not the tower falling all on him at once, but we could say it's leaning on him really hard at this point, squeezing all the air out of him and his agony is immense. What are the things he's weighed down by? Well, he's agonizing under the weight of temptation. The devil has come again to tempt him to bypass the cross. Is there another way? There's this final assault by the devil to, fight, to bypass the cross. Jesus also agonizes under the weight of sin's imputation. You see, it's one thing John pointed to, to his disciples and says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's one thing for Jesus to know he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's one thing for Jesus to take the weight of sin upon his shoulders when he's baptized. But it's quite another thing for it to be only hours away from when the sins of the world are imputed to him. He's weighed down not with fear of death. He's weighed down with the weight of our sin pressing down upon him. The guilt of sin must be imputed to him so that we might be saved. His he must take our sin upon Himself so that we might be saved and His righteousness is imputed to us so that we might be in right standing with God. Here we see a God-man. We see that He's fully man with a human body and a reasonable soul. He's under the agony or weight of temptation and He's under the agony or the weight of our sin being imputed to him, the guilt will be laid on him. Sometimes we would wonder at this point, will he even get to the cross? Will he even be able to say any words when he does when it's time to pray? Jesus is also agonizing under the weight of sin's isolation. Which one is worse? Is isolation worse than imputation? Well, if you're, if the sins of the world are imputed on Jesus, the isolation comes with it. They go together. Jesus knows that all human companionship at this point in time will exit him. They will, people will walk away. He knows that, that uh, Judas will betray him. He knows that Peter will deny him. He knows that all ten disciples are going to walk away from him. He knows that, that he will be delivered over to the chief priest 
They will deliver him over as guilty. They will deliver him over to Pilate. Pilate will sentence him to death to uh, a cross by Roman soldiers. Every single human being will leave him. And ultimately, he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God, when he cries that out, there's going to be no reply. Because he's going to be completely isolated. He has to drink this cup, the cup of God's wrath, and he will drink it and be completely alone. No human companionship and not even God the Father's companionship. Well, these are the things that Jesus is agonizing under the weight of these things are upon him. And then Jesus, we see him praying. With the weight that is on him, will he be able to get any words out? We will wonder if he will be able to even get up off of the ground. He says, remain here to his disciples and keep watch with me. And so he goes a little way beyond them and he fell on his face. Will he be able to get the words out? We see his posture there in verse 39. He fell on his face and he prayed. Have you ever fallen on your face to pray? There's a movie where uh, I, I love this scene because he's, he's quoting my, one of my favorite verses. But Martin Luther in the movie, uh, before he is asked to recant his faith, there's a, there's a show in the movie where he's laying on his face like this and he's saying, Lord, save me. He's face down on the ground. It's a good, it's a good depiction of what was going on in his life. Lord, save me. Have you ever done that? That's where Jesus <clears throat> is at. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call on me in the day of trouble. Psalm 107, 6, 13, 19, and 28 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Job fell on his face when all things came against him. The Apostle Paul, when he brought his thorn in the flesh before the Lord three times, in his misery he prayed. And Jesus is praying to the Father, just like we've been studying David. David in the cave. David praying constantly to God. Jesus is in his Gethsemane cave and he's praying to God face down. Not only do we see the posture of his prayer, but we see the content of his prayer. Note the words that have been prayed. Verse 39, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So he's addressing the father with intimacy. If it is possible. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Let me put it in Mark Wheat paraphrase terms. Do I really have to go through this? Do I really have to go through this? Verse 42. My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then we're told in verse 44, he prayed that a third time. I want you to notice also the essence of his prayer. And this is where I want to spend the most time tonight. What is the essence of his prayer? In one word, it's submission. Submission to the Father's will. The emphasis in the first prayer is, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The emphasis in the final two prayers is this, your will be done. Here we have Jesus. Jesus, what has Jesus done? He's taught us to pray a prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus is praying the prayer that he's taught his disciples. And Jesus has learned throughout his life obedience through what he suffers. 
At the age of 12, he learned obedience by submitting to his parents and going home with them. At the beginning of his ministry, he learned obedience by preaching and by doing the miracles. It was his food to do the will of him, the Father who sent him. And now at the bitter end of his life, he is submitting to the Father's will one more time. I love it in Romans 5 where it says this one act is the epitomizing act of every obedient act in Jesus' thoughts and words and deeds. This is the one act that epitomizes his whole life. He will go to the cross. We've asked, will he be able to pray? Well, he did pray. We've asked, will he be able to get up? We're going to see if he gets up in a minute. But he does. He does get up. He does pass through this. He must drink this, this cup all the way to the bitter dregs. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now, how many lessons are there for us here? I, this is, let, me, let me just give you a, a, a short sermon in the middle of the sermon. Here's, here's a little sermon for you to think about. Did you notice how many words he prayed? Let me answer, not many. Did you notice how intensely he prayed? Very. Did you notice how many times he prayed? Three times, persistently. Did you notice that Jesus had a place for prayer? Gethsemane. Did you notice Jesus took friends with him when he prayed? Eleven. There's a little prayer for you. I mean, a little sermon for you. Wow, that, 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 that's right there. That's worth meditating on for a few days. You and I, we are not going to drink a cup of wrath from the hand of God only to save sinners. But every one of us who are His people, every one of us, we face a world of hurt that's coming. And when we are in this world, we have this opportunity to say one of two things. We either say, your will be done, or we say, I don't want your will to be done. We won't say it. We either say your will be done, or we don't say your will be done. And let me promise you something. If you do not say your will be done, there's two, two things that will happen. You'll either be full of rage, or you'll be totally despairing. You'll either be full of anger or you'll be a person who's over here despondent. It's one or the other. And I would probably say from my own experience, you flop and you flip and you flop back in between the two of them. That's my own experience. So let me, let me bring this to you a little bit more. As we think about this first question, think about this. Do I really have to go through this? Well, you know, the answer is yes. Whatever it is you're going through, you have to go through it many times. Let me, let me give you some of my own questions I've asked myself. Do I really have a basketball coach that's treating me this badly? <laughs> yes, I did. Do I really have to have another injury? Do I really have to wear another boot on my foot? Do I really have to put my foot... In a bucket of ice for three solid months? Yes, you did. Do I really have a teacher who took 15 points off my score when I got the answer right? Because I didn't show all my work. I did some of it in my head. I would have had a 100. But no matter how much I argued, she wasn't going to change it. Do I really have to transform myself into an exercise physiologist or a personal trainer? Instead of a minister? Yes, only if you want to eat. <laughs> Do I really have to take licensure exams and theological exams to be an OPC minister? Yes, if you want to be a minister. 
But Lord, listen, this is, listen, listen, I think in my own life I grew up and um, I was shielded a lot by my mom and dad. I don't think they did it on purpose. They loved me. I think I grew up most of the years that I was growing up and I looked at life sort of like this. Take two of these and call me in the morning. And I never had to call the doctor in the morning because I took two of these and felt better the next day and everything was fine. But then life began to hit home. Do I really have to bury my father, my hunting partner? Does he really have renal cell carcinoma and is he going to die? Yes, he did die. And yes, you will bury your father. Do I really have to go through these things? Yes. Even when you keep trying to do something and it doesn't work out. And do you, you have to ask yourself, do I keep doing this or do I try something else? Did eight doors just close on me? Is this the eighth one? Did it just close on me? Do I really have to bury my father-in-law? Am I really sitting in front of a woman whose husband just ran off from her and am I really giving her counsel and helping her out? Yes, you are. I do have to go through this. The answer to all of these different providences that come, that come our way is yes, you do have to go through them. And so we have to ask the next question, how will you go through them? There's no way out of them. And as I said to you, we either bend our wills to the will that God is placing in front of us, the providence in front of us, or we don't. And if we, if we don't, we walk this fine line. We, we're going to be walking this fine line of rage and despondency, and we don't really want to be there. But I've been there, and that's why I'm sharing this with you. If you refuse to say, your will be done when your plans and your schemes do not work out, I can guarantee you one of the two of those. When I was in the 10th grade, a coach, he didn't start me, and that went ac- that cut across my will. <laughs> now, this is for anything, but this is just real. The coach didn't start me. This is the first time in my life that I didn't start. Well, that just went against the grain. And not only did he not start me, at times he just, he really mistreated me. And instead of praying to God, and instead of saying, your will be done, Instead of walking with the Lord through all of this, I was either full of rage or I was full of despair. One of the two. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here. I'm going to blame myself. But I will tell you that the next year, one of the students that was under this coach actually during uh, practice took his shoes off and threw the shoes at the coach. I didn't do that. I just screamed at him. So I was sent over to the bleachers. And then after that was over, he, he stopped and he says, you get out, I won't say the words he used, you get out of the gym, you're suspended for three weeks. And so for three weeks, I didn't get to play basketball. I came back and I was given 75 line drills to complete. One week later, I fell and I broke, I, I didn't break my ankle, but I was back in another boot. My 10th grade year was nothing but rage and despair, anger and sadness all at once. Because my will was crossed. When we don't get our way, what will we do? Well, in my own experience, and as I've watched others, we either say your will be done or we don't. And if we will not say it, we become judgmental and harsh and angry and full of rage. I remember that I wouldn't even want to do my homework. I remember my dad sitting at the table with my... um, paper out, my books out, and the pencils out and everything, trying to get me to do my homework. 
My mom kept praying for me. My mom kept telling me to trust in God. My mom kept telling me that God was working all these things for good. My mom kept telling me God had a purpose for all this. But would I listen? (laughs) Would I come to my senses? Would I believe anything the Bible said? Or would I just remain full of venom and look at everything through a dark filter? Jesus did teach me what to do. You know where He taught me what to do? He taught me what to do in the Lord's Prayer. What's the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name. We say these words all the time. Do we really mean them? (laughs) Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Am I paying attention to these words, Lord? Your will be done when I have a coach who mistreats me. Lord, your will be done when eight doors close upon me. Lord, your will be done when I'm hurting beyond my wildest imagination. Hallowed be your name in this part of my life. Thy kingdom come in this part of my life. Your will be done. Maybe I need to say more words in prayer and less words to others at times. Maybe I need to learn to love my neighbor and love God and love even a teacher who takes 15 points off my score when she shouldn't have. Right? (laughs) Maybe I need to learn, even though I judge things, everything completely right, I need to learn to fall down on the side of mercy and prayer and dependence upon God to right all the wrongs and not to fall into rage and despondency. The fifth commandment is basically submission to authority, isn't it? Honor thy father and thy mother. And Jesus wants us to say that we are submitted to his will. He wants us to learn that he's here to prosper us and not do us harm. He wants us to learn that He's at work in our pits, in our caves, in our misery. Even whatever cross it is we have to carry. God is good. And we don't fall into anger and to rage or or sadness and despondency when we say, Your will be done. And He will raise us up. The third thing we see here tonight is Jesus keeping watch. And there's a special thing here. I want you to listen for it. He says this, are you still sleeping and resting in verse 45? Three separate times Jesus told his disciples to keep watch with him and to pray. He wants them to be ready for the temptations ahead. But, you know, it was after midnight when he said these things. So it's going to be a real uh, difficult thing to do. It's going to be easy to fall asleep after midnight. Jesus came to them and said, are you still sleeping and resting in verse 45? But you know, that question can be translated as an imperative. Let me tell you what it sounds like when it's an imperative. Sleep on and take your rest. Keep sleeping. Keep resting. Sleep on. If we take it as an imperative, it's a precious truth that Jesus is not questioning their obedience, but He's watching over them. Keep on sleeping and I'll watch over you. Keep on resting. I won't rest. I will watch over you. And so Jesus comes to them that third time. And Luke 22, 43 tells us that he comes strengthened by an angel. You remember the last time we read that Jesus was strengthened by an angel in Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, when he's going through the temptation, the angels come and they strengthen him after the temptation. Jesus has been strengthened after he's fallen on his face. Jesus gets up. Now he's watching over them. And he's ready to go to the cross. 
Now, as we move to the Lord's Supper, let me ask you a question. Y'all remember the prophet Elijah? God fed the prophet Elijah with meat and bread by the brook. God the Father gave grace to the apostle Paul when he was agonizing with the thorn in the flesh. God the Father strengthened Jesus Christ in the garden so that he could get on up and move towards the cross. And will God the Father not strengthen us tonight as Jesus gives us the bread and the wine? You have been, Jesus Christ has been strengthened to keep watch over them, and they failed. And Jesus keeps watch over us in the garden, and Jesus kept watch over us on the cross. And Jesus rose from the dead only to rise up and sit at the Father's right hand where He never does anything but keep watch over us. And so today as we think about Jesus agonizing and praying and keeping watch, remember He's watching over us even now. So as we think about the table tonight, is there any place where you haven't said your will be done? If there's any place where you haven't said your will be done, it's time to say it, and let's take this Lord's Supper together. It's my privilege to invite you to this table. In verses 26 and 28 of the chapter we just looked into here, Jesus says this, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. When He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So tonight, Jesus has been strengthened to get ready to go to the cross. And you and I, he hands to us the bread and the wine to strengthen us. I love the word re-ratify. He wants to give us his body and his blood to re-ratify the covenant with us. He's made a covenant with us. We've made a covenant with him. And so now he wants to re-ratify it. He wants to take... He wants us to take the bread and the wine from His hands and say, I love you, even as He tells us to love Him as we take these elements from Him. The importance of this table is that Christ is uniquely present with us in a way different than preaching. We hear God's Word preached and grace is received as we listen to the Word of God and receive it with faith in our heart. And as we take the bread and the wine, we receive God's grace through our mouths as we eat and drink with faith in our hearts, it's a spiritual eating and a spiritual drinking. And it's required of all of us who participate tonight that we understand what we're doing, that we're sincere, and we're accountable believers to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us to examine our hearts and ask those questions. Am I an instructed person in all of these things? Am I sincere as I take the bread and the wine? And am I a member of Christ's church? And so if you don't know what we're doing tonight, that's not a problem. Just listen and learn and watch. If you haven't made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then that's okay. We want you to watch. We want you to observe. But the most important thing before we would ever sit with Jesus at the table is that we would first take him by faith. And then we will talk about taking this supper together in the future. So tonight, have you been instructed? Are you here and are you sincere? Are you part of the family of God and a member of one of, of one of His churches, either this church or another church? Jesus says, come to the table and be nourished. Jesus says, come and have your thirst quenched. Come 
to the table of the Lord. Let's pray.